So we've got it. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming along. Um, yeah, it's evidence-based medicine is, is something that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, I first got interested in it about 11, 12 years ago uh, when I was lecturing in vet nursing and I was working with the human nurses at that time and they were really enthusiastic about evidence-based medicine and so I had to teach it and I learned an awful lot from the human side of things. So over the years we've been pushing that at a student level and now that our CVS has taken on board um, the whole idea of evidence-based medicine is fantastic and I'm delighted to be involved with that and, and to help out. So when I saw you were coming to Edinburgh, I, I just have to come along and, and present something. So it is a dermatology subject that I'm presenting, although I am now working with vets now in an emergency setting, um, but it's really from the learning perspective. So what I've tried to do today is pull together something which might be of interest to clinicians um, from a, a working with your cases side of things, but also give us an example of working through the literature review, the knowledge summary, and analysing the data that's out there. Um, so I hope we'll bring together a few different aspects of evidence-based medicine. So it's on malassezia, bit of a strange topic perhaps. Um, why did I choose this topic to look at? Well, this is a couple of my dogs here. Um, I first got interested in the whole malassezia dermatology side of things as a student and thinking back, microbiology class, the, the lecturer told, gave us a toothbrush and told us to take the toothbrush home and brush our pets with it and didn't tell us why. So we duly did this and at that time I had a little Cavalier King Charles Spaniel who didn't have any skin problems, um, brushed, brushed her religiously, went back, we plated it up on the Sabro agar and then a few days later back to class and everybody's getting their plates back and everybody's plates have a few little colonies on it and the lecturer goes, Mary, what have I done wrong? And so I went along and they showed me my plate and it was covered in malastasia. You couldn't see the agar. It was absolutely covered. And he says, does your dog have a problem? And I'm like, no, no, she's never had any skin problems, never had any ear problems, nothing. He says, does she smell a bit? Like, yeah, yeah, she does. Is her skin a wee bit greasy as well? And a good Scottish word is fusty. And she does. She did smell fusty. Um, he says, I think you might need to give her a bath or something. She's got quite a lot of that. But it was a good example to me of there's things on the skin that are just there naturally and don't always cause a problem. So although I'm going to talk about malastasia from a clinical setting and us finding it and it causing problems, it might not always be the root cause and, it, and, and the case of, of Amber, my little cavalier, um, it wasn't causing her a problem at all, um, despite being covered in it. My other two dogs, I seem to have every dog I've ever had has had malastasia. Um, Lucy here, the English setter, you can see shaking her head. She was atopic. She had horrendous ears um, and gave us lots of fun. This was when I was a postgrad. I had Lucy and she had 
did have problems with malathexia and we ended up culturing that and it was resistant to absolutely everything that was on the market at the time. Now that is nearly 20 years ago, um, but we did have to think of other ways of managing her. And then Amy, that I now have, um, doesn't really have any problems, but does have malathexia, and we use her for teaching. She's great. You take a swab of her ear, and you're guaranteed to find malathexia to show to the students. So, it's quite prevalent, I think, is the point of all of that. So, thinking about otitis externa, just a quick review, I'm sure you all know this. Very common condition in practice virtually every day, we're going to have cases coming in. Lots of different factors come together to produce a case of otitis externa. And if you look at the textbooks, we have the predisposing, the primary, and the secondary factors. And we have to think about all of that when we're treating a case. So our predisposing factors are thinking about the structure of the ear canal. Is it very narrow? Do they have lots of hair down the ears? Thinking of things like poodles. Do they have pendulous ears, cocker spaniels? There's no ventilation getting in there. All of that predisposes us to a problem, but doesn't necessarily cause it. We then have the primary causes, the things that will actually cause the disease. So thinking of things like ear mites, ectoparasites, foreign bodies, running through the grass, getting a, a grass seed stuck down their ear, the allergies, bacteria, seborrhea, all these sorts of things can be primary, could be secondary as well. There's a whole load of overlap in all of this. And then all the secondary causes. So they get the foreign body down the ear, they start scratching, it then gets inflamed, infected. You know all of this. And Lucy, my English setter, I would go to bed at night, she was fine. I would get up in the morning. Her ear was horrendous because she had spent all night with her foot down her ear, scratching it. And it was always one ear. It was never both ears. It was always just the one ear that she scratched at because she was generally itchy because she was atopic. So we've got all these different things to think about um, when we're considering malasthesia. So if we focus on um, malasthesia then, it originally goes back to 1925 when it was first described and described in a vinyl. Hence the name Pachydermatis, that's where that, that comes from. And I have to say thank you to Edinburgh Zoo for the photograph colleague there kindly um, gave me use of that. Historically it was called Pityrosporum, so if you look at older papers you will see it described as that. And then, like everything, they changed the name um, to Malasetia. And it's a yeast that we're going to see on swabs when we take uh, our samples. So as I've said already with my little cavalier, it's a commensal. We're going to find it on the skin. We're going to find it down the ears. Certain parts of their anatomy will have larger numbers. Um, put a picture here of a basset hound. Bassets are a breed that are, seem to have a skin that Malasthetia likes to live on. Um, and are quite predisposed to having problems with that. And in particular, axillae, groin, the folds in the neck, any sort of sweaty, greasy areas, malasthetia will love, and you will get like, increased numbers there. Is it a primary problem? Is it a secondary problem? It could be either. 
normal years, looking at various papers, there's a whole range of different um, factors and different values for the normal um, presence of malassezia between 7 and 49%. And then how does it actually cause a problem? Well, it can release inflammatory mediators and contribute to the whole inflammatory response. But there's also been some recent work showing that there is an immune response to that um, and IgE antibodies being produced. So there is part of the problem could be an allergic response to the presence of the yeast as well. So thinking about the medications then, um, I wanted to look at the different medications that were out there and being used and is there any one that's better than any other. So if we look at all the preparations that are there, these are the sort of medications that we find in them. So we have nystatin, the azoles, clotrimazole, myconazole, etc. Lots of new ones keep appearing, and terbinafine. And they're the sort of medications that you will find in the topical. And then there's also the ear cleaners. Now, this talk didn't really focus on the ear cleaners. I will make a little mention of it because I do believe they're really important. Um, so lots of different things that are in the ear cleaners as well. So we've got lots of, little, lots of different options available to us. So coming back to my actual literature review knowledge summary, we decided that the aim was therefore to look at the current approaches to treatment of malasthesia in cases of canine otitis externa. We then have to try and turn that into a clinical question. So same thing, but I've said it in a different way. So what treatments are most likely to cure malasthesia was what I decided upon. Thinking about the whole knowledge summary side of things and evidence-based medicine and trying to have a structure to it, um, the RCVS knowledge website's huge amounts of information on there and will take you through the different stages. So I tried to go through those different stages um, so we could use this as a, as a teaching tool for some students as well. So this follows on from the whole human side of things from evidence-based medicine where they will create the PICO question that I'm sure other lecturers have been talking about. So what's the population that I'm interested in? Well, it's dogs, so that's the canine population. What was my intervention? Well, it was my treatment that I was going to give and it was specifically topical treatment that I was looking at. What sort of control would be in place? Well, the control is going to be difficult in a clinical setting, as I'm sure other people have talked about. Um, so I prefer to call this the comparison that I'm looking at. So I was going to look at the different forms of treatment that were out there, the different drugs. And what was my outcome going to be that the animal had been cured with that form of treatment? Doing the literature search is the fun bit, or possibly not. Um, you need to decide on your keywords, and that will make or break the review that you're going to do. And we decided, after a few trial and errors, that these would be the keywords that we went for. So, malasthesia, canine or dog, otitis, and then treatment, and various different words for treatment. Um, again, you could have come up with other words. Why didn't I put pitivospirum in? Why did I choose malassezia? Um, otitis, should I have done otitis externa? Should I have put ear disease? There is a bit of trial and error to the literature reviews and see what happens. 
Databases to go for, there's again, there's a whole range of different databases that we can use. PubMed is the one I kind of like, because um, I, I seem to get best results with that. But there's a whole variety of different databases, and probably we should go to more than one database, because you will always find something else will come up on the literature review. So what did we get? I got a whole load of different references came up. Um, there was a lot more than 26 that actually came up to start with. There was hundreds to start with. And maybe you could say, well, was your, was your strategy good enough then, if that's what came up? Um, but when you're putting in words like canine and otitis, you are going to get a whole load of different uh, results coming through. So we had to sift it. We had to sit and go through it. And I came up with about 26 relevant papers that I thought, yes, that's actually relevant to veterinary medicine and to clinical cases. But when we actually sifted it further, we found that some of them, there's an example there, you probably can't read that, but it talks about transmission electron microscopy. I thought, hmm, really interesting, but not really what I'm looking for. So we threw out a few papers that were a little bit esoteric um, or using some real technical equipment and not really clinical. And that took us down to 11. Then we had a lot of papers focused on lab work because I'm looking at malassezia. So a lot of papers looked at culturing it in the laboratory under different conditions, which I thought, OK, that's relevant. We'll put that to one side. But for this, I'm really interested in what relates to practice. So we ended up with three papers, which is a bit of a common problem with the whole evidence-based side of things in veterinary medicine. We don't have the number of papers that they have in human medicine, but we have to start somewhere. Um, so I went with it. So we had three papers that were double-blind, randomized, controlled trials, and actually looked at in vivo work. So we had the Ruchier paper, Bensignor, and the Hensel paper. So we could just stop at that point and say, okay, what were the results, and just go with it. Now, bearing in mind that I used to be a lecturer and teaching students, that's not good enough, okay? We have to look at the papers in detail, and we have to go through the papers and then decide whether we actually agree with what they say or if we don't agree with it. Now, I'm not going to bore you too much. I will just zoom through this bit quite quickly. But it is really important that we go back and we go through the whole of the original paper, if we can, if we can see it. And these were the points that really I wanted to focus on. So the study design. How was it designed and was that a sensible approach to take? What population were we looking at? Where did those animals come from? How were they selected? How were they recruited? And I'll show you some examples of why that's important in a second. And what were the inclusion-exclusion criteria that they used when they designed the study? Ethics. Historically, if you look at the older papers, ethics might not get a mention. That doesn't mean it wasn't considered, but at that time, a lot of the journals didn't ask for you to mention ethical approval in your paper. Now, that is the standard. You have to include where your ethical approval was granted from. Um, so you'll find that older papers might not make mention of the ethics. How did they collect their data? Was it quantitative? Was it qualitative? And is it reliable? Is it robust? Is it reproducible? You know, 
I'll come on to scoring systems in a second, and there's a little bit of disagreement. If you have two people in a room looking at a dog with sore ears, will they both give the same opinion? Will one say, yes, that's a really sore ear, and one will say, well, actually, that's not bad, I've seen worse. So how reliable are these scoring systems if you're going to do statistics on them? And then the results they came up with, did they actually make sense and relate to the figures that are presented and the conclusions? Does it all tie together? So having a quick look at the different papers, the first one, the Rougier paper, looked at hepatitis rather than just malastasia, so it was looking at bacterial infections as well. And it was comparing two commercial ear preparations. So it compared Orizon with Suralat. It did have a nice random allocation of the, to the different groups. And the operators were blinded, so they didn't know which dogs had, had which treatment. We had a lot of dogs, so 204 dogs. That's quite a big study in um, comparison to some of the other papers that had smaller groups. But the dogs came from quite a broad spread geographically. I'm not sure if that would make a difference or not. And inclusion-exclusion criteria was the presentation of hepatitis, and we excluded them if they'd had previous treatment, and in particular steroids. So you think, okay, that's good, that's sensible. And ethics, we did get informed consent, although they didn't give me much information about the ethics side of things. The scoring system is where I have a slight problem with this. Um, so they scored on 0 to 3 the different parameters. How reliable is that? If it was the one person doing the scoring system, then yes, you have a reliability within that study. But how reproducible would that be if somebody else did it? It doesn't say it's a bad thing, but it's just something we need to consider. And they also did lab work and statistics. And the results did tend to tie up with the, 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 the figures that were presented and the conclusion and it all tied together. And they told us that Orison gave a better um, response than Suralan, although Suralan did fix the cases as well. The one thing, though, to note was who sponsored the work, the people that produce Orison. Well, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's something that we need to acknowledge that a lot of the papers that are produced are produced by the drug companies. So we just need to keep an open mind when they tell us that their product is better than the, the competition's product. The Bensinger paper, again, um, look, compared combination therapy with just using an antifungal therapy, but it had a much smaller sample group, so we only had 20 groups in it. So we're comparing um, the clotrimazole marbofloxus index with just myconazole. Again, we've got inclusion exclusion criteria, particularly dogs that have had steroids, so you think, great, that's good. No information about the ethics. Again, we've got a scoring system, which I have a little bugbear about. And we did stats on it. And results, unsurprisingly, were that the combination therapy was better than just the myconazole. The statistics, I've said they're P less than 0.1. That was one of the parameters. Some of the other parameters had much better p-values than that. Um, so there were some good p-values in there. But just tells us that combination products are worthwhile, and you think, I sort of knew that already. Does that really help me in practice? And then the last one was looking at a, a therapy where we added in a collating agent called Tricide. So we had the same comparison, but just Tricide being the one difference. Again, a kind of small population, 31 years from 20 dogs. 
which I thought, okay, how did you do that? 31 years and 20 dogs. But we obviously had some, some of the dog's ears didn't meet the criteria and possibly had been affected by chronic problems. So irreversible anatomic ear changes. And we did have some ethical approval there for that. Again, we have a scoring system, um, which again, might not be as reliable, as robust as we want it to be, but we did do antimicrobial testing and they did do stats. And possibly, again, unsurprisingly, the collating agent made a difference. So if we have any therapeutics that have that um, in them, then it might be worthwhile thinking about that from a clinical perspective. So we've got a whole load of different things there that all come together. As a quick aside, I did have to go and look at the ear cleaner things as well, although that wasn't the main focus, because the ear cleaner studies were done in vitro rather than in vivo, but these two papers, if anybody wants them, I can give you the references, were just lovely papers looking at ear cleaners and which ones we should use and which ones we shouldn't use. Um, so I just thought I'd have to throw that in from a clinical perspective that the, using the ear cleaners is very, very useful and there are some, some really good work out there on that and which ones to use. So the, also the one other thing to note from a clinical perspective with using the ear cleaners was that they had different isolates of malastasia and ear cleaner response was different for those different isolates. So if you have a case of malastasia, you, it may well respond to a drug that another case doesn't respond to. There, is a, there are differences in your strains of malastasia that you're going to be dealing with in practice. So, bringing all of that together, what is the point? Where are we going with this? So, thinking about our search strategy is really important for the literature um, because that's, that's the papers we're going to look at. And if we don't get our search strategy right, we won't have the right literature to look at. When we're looking at the papers, the study design is really important. How did they recruit them? How did they include or exclude their patients? And how reliable or robust was their data collection methods? And what other factors were there? So these ones were quite good that they made sure they didn't have steroids beforehand because that might have affected the results. And thinking, do, they, do the findings actually show, relate to the results that they presented? We do have a small number of papers. I have to acknowledge that this is a really small number of papers that's out there, and that is something that we have to work on um, for future. And I am a great believer in clinical research. And when I say research, I don't mean experiment. I mean just studying the cases, the case records that we're working with. Um, this is what I did as my PhD, working with the guide dogs. We went through clinical records and put, drew out the information. And for you guys in practice, go through the clinical records and you'll see patterns appearing. Yes, your data collection methods need to be reliable and you need to have consistency between the way that people are recording things. But there is so much information in the clinical records that we could be doing so much clinical research. Thinking about these papers, we had lab work, we had animal work, and I was particularly interested in the animal side, and that's what took us down to only three papers. And thinking about ear treatment and malastasia, maybe that was a wrong thing to do, because if we do lab work and we're looking at MICs, minimum inhibitory concentrations, that's not strictly true when we're dealing with our cases, because when we put ear medication 
down the ear and it's topical, the concentration of drugs that we have there is way above MICs. Um, so the two don't always go together. So you may have a result from the lab that says actually that shouldn't work, but it will work because of the way the medication is applied to the animal. So just drawing it all together, final few slides. Um, Thinking of otitis externa, I really like this, pro this quote um, from Kibasa here, saying that treatment failure over cases of otitis externa is generally due to poor management of all those conditions that I mentioned at the beginning, rather than drug resistance. Although, I have to clarify that, remember Lucy, my English setter, who did have a malastetia growing down her ear that was resistant to absolutely everything that was available at the time. So we have to consider both of those approaches in practice when the case is in front of us. And as a general veterinary perspective, Mueller's quote, there is a lack of clinical studies. Good randomized controlled trials in practice are really something that the profession needs to work on and we need to take forward so that we can say we have that robust evidence there and this, this is what we found. So from these papers, what did we find? Well, there's a whole load of different treatments that are out there and I'm sorry to say I didn't come up with one golden answer from my literature review that said this is the way forward, this is what you should be doing. Um, so it's still a case of you know yourself what's good in practice and try it, but keep a watch on the literature because there is much more work being done out there. And certainly from the ear cleaner perspective, they did come up with some nice answers in those papers. Combination therapy is more effective, we kind of knew that, and the clear difference between the different ear cleaners. So that kind of brought it all together. I'm not sure if you think that helps or doesn't help. Um, see where we go with that. So. I'd just like to say thank you to Simon, my colleague, um, who helped me with this work, um, to Vets Now for giving me some time off to come and do this, and also um, RZSS for the picture of the rhino, lovely rhino. Um, and I have some, if anybody wants the references, I can give you the references and do that.